You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried there for him by his baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Lord Jesus, have mercy on this church. Amen. You may be seated. So... Here's the thing. I usually, and I think it's really important that when we preach, we use a lot of scripture. And I'm going to use so much scripture today that I, it would take too long for me to read it. But raise your hand if you were at the 318 men's meeting, the last breakfast that we had. All my boys who were there, we had about 65 verses that we went through in that Bible study. And a lot of what you're going to hear now, the men already heard, and I just really felt once in a while that... There's moments where you say something to a group of people and you think, man, I think the whole church needs to hear this. And so some of what we're going to say today was said at the 318 breakfast for the men, and so I'm sure they will just dive deeper into it. I'm going to use a lot of scripture, and in that way, I'm actually not going to read any more scripture because I'm just going to have to talk about it because it would be so much. And so what I want to talk about, if you are aware, if, if you are, you know, well-read in your Bible, you know that Genesis chapters 1 through 11 have a lot of major cosmic stories in them. The creation, the flood, the Tower of Babel, just these big sweeping narratives. And in those first 11 chapters, which they're called prehistory, they set the table for the story of the Bible beginning with Abraham. They set the table, and in those first 11 chapters, there are three communities. There are three broken communities in those first 11 chapters. There's the broken community of Adam, there's the broken community of Noah, and there's the broken community of Babel. And I want to talk about these three broken communities because the the series we're on is we're talking about what kind of church are we. And so the first week we talked about how we're convergent. We worship in a multifaceted, very hospitable way. We're all things to all people. We're Pentecostals, but we can be Pentecostals in dance. We can be Pentecostals in shouting. We can be Pentecostals in a contemplative service. We can be Pentecostals in the liturgy. We can be Pentecostals when we leave here and witness today on Main Street. We worship at Salem Tabernacle in a myriad of ways because we want to be all things to all people. We want people to come in here and see something they're familiar with and something that's maybe a new taste for them. Then we talked about what it means to be Christian. And in one sentence, here's what it means to be Christian. When you can look at the world and say what Jesus said, this is my body given for you. That's what it means to be Christian. To walk out of here and say to the world that are deniers and betrayers and doubters, this is our body given for you. Because that's what Jesus said to everyone in this room who's a denier, (laughs) a betrayer, has a faulty marriage, Has he said it to all of us every single Sunday? That's what we say to the world. So convergent is hospitality. Christian is this is me given for you. What is community? We have to look at broken community 
before we can see what the baptismal community is and how it's different. So we're going to look at the three broken communities, and then we're going to look at what our new identity as a baptized community looks like. So the broken community of Adam. There's a lot to say about this story. If you're not familiar with the story, the story of Adam is the story, is the beginning of the story of Jesus. It's the beginning of the story of a God who doesn't just create, but he enters into his own creation and suffers the fate of his own creation. And I would say, go home and read Genesis 3, because God shows us how death already is playing a role in our redemption in Genesis chapter 3. And the death that happens in the garden is not Adam or Eve. So go read the story. There's a lot in there. I also challenge you for LTG groups and whoever the ghostwriter is for the LTG group questions. You're in the room right now. The first question I want to be, I want people to be able to find three other kinds of broken communities that are, they're all throughout the Bible. These are the first three, but they're all throughout the Bible. And I want you to be able to find them and name them I want you to read your Bible looking for these things because if we don't identify what's broken, we'll have a hard time identifying why our redemption is important. So how's Adam broken? I would venture to say, in my opinion, that Adam's brokenness isn't so much the result of the sin they committed, but ultimately expressed in how they handled the sin that they committed. So Adam and Eve both eat the fruit of the tree that God told them not to eat from. Does anybody know the name of the tree? Shout it out. It's such a long name that it sounds weird when everybody says it. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Did he want us to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Which means, did he want us to have the knowledge of good and evil? Well, that's confusing. Listen, he wants us to discern in the spirit good and evil. He doesn't want us to wholly have that knowledge. Because we can only have as much of the knowledge of good and evil as the Spirit is willing to give us because if we have too much of it, it turns into accusation. We can't handle the full knowledge of right and wrong. Otherwise, we will be assessing it in everybody we see all the time. So the knowledge of good and evil was something that God wanted to give us through the spiritual gift of discernment, through walking with him in drips and drabs as needed, not in totality. The minute they ate the fruit, they crash. They can't handle the weight of the knowledge of good and evil. I think Solomon said it. He who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Hun, I love, dang, that's sexy. No, okay. Here we are, I'm back. They sin, and this is important. God enters the garden. And God enters into conversation with Adam and Eve. Adam, where are you, is the first response to sin in the Bible. A father asking a son a question. Not accusation. Adam, where are you? I heard the sound of you coming in the garden, and I hid because I was naked. God says, who told you that you were naked? Notice, God's first move is not to point out wrong. His first move is to engage in conversation because relationship is far more important to God than correct behavior is. You can all go home now. Relationship is more important to God 
than correct behavior is. Adam, where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? God knows where Adam is. God knows that somebody told Adam he was naked. And God knows that he ate the fruit, but God doesn't unleash that at Adam. He invites Adam into his life. Adam's first response. Men, you heard this on Saturday. The woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. So who's the first person Adam blames? The woman you gave me, she made me do it. Not smart, Adam. God's like, okay, I'll deal with you in a minute. That was dumb. Eve, why'd you eat it? Now, the first verse in Genesis 3 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So who made the serpent? Who made Eve? Who did Adam blame first? Eve said the serpent made me do it. But who made the serpent? So who did Adam and Eve both blame first? This is not good. And this starts, when you read the text, this starts a long line of Cain accusing Abel and Lamech murdering other people and genealogies and generations of corruption and murder and brokenness and accusation. Because when the only way we can be right is to make somebody else wrong, there's a problem. Most of the time we vindicate ourselves. We vindicate ourselves at the expense of somebody else. I make myself right because somebody else is wrong. I make myself a winner because somebody else is a loser. I make myself successful because somebody else has failed. I vindicate myself at the expense of my neighbor. For the rest, almost for the rest of the Bible, but definitely for the rest of Genesis 3 now to 11, this is all that is happening. So the first community is the community of accusation. That's easy to see. The first community, the Edenic or the Eden community, is a community of accusation. She made me do it, God, this is your fault. The devil made me do it, God, this is your fault. And God's like, I shouldn't, I shouldn't even have come into the garden that day. I should not have even strolled into the garden that day. I should have just hung out and watched TV and left it alone. So all of a sudden, you read all the way to Genesis 6, and it says, Now everyone on the earth was corrupt. And there was nothing but corruption on the face of the earth. Why? Because we became accusers. And what does Jesus say of the devil? He's the accuser of the brethren. And Jesus also says he's a liar from the beginning. So all the accusations are actually lies. There is no accusation ultimately before God that's the truth. We'll get to why in a minute. But anyway, there's a complete culture now of accusation. And now God says everyone has become corrupt. And then there's this funny verse. It says, and Noah was righteous in his generation. Well, that's good. Except nobody else was righteous. And the flood comes and destroys everybody except for how many were raised on Christian cartoons? Come on, put your hands up proudly. Don't be shy. It's not like... Cartoons Anonymous here, like, you know. I, anybody ever hear of Superbook? Flying House? Salty, the singing songbook? 
this weird guy that parents let their kids go up a mountain with? Like, have some wisdom, mom and dad. This is, he's dressed in blue. Like, this is not, like, let a big smurf take your children up a mountain. In every cartoon and in Hollywood's movie about Noah, when the flood begins and the rains start, what the people are trying to climb onto the ark, and in all the cartoons, Noah is standing outside the ark saying, please come in, please come in, it's raining, we've never seen rain before, but this probably isn't good, God made me build a boat, now I know what a boat is, I didn't know while I was building it, starting to make sense now, everybody get in, and he's trying to get people in, and are the people going in? No, none of them are going in, they're all terrible and horrible and hate Jesus and hate God, and, and they're drinking and partying, and Noah's like, please put down the wine, we have wine in here, come into the ark and they're like no we'd rather not even though we've never seen rain before and it's raining this is fine that's not what happened here's what happened in the bible Noah, now that you built the ark i'm going to send a flood and kill everybody so go into the ark and Noah's like all right cool (laughs) there's there's not a verse where noah asks anybody to come into the ark superbook and flying house lied (laughs) mom and dad Don't let me celebrate Halloween, but you feed me cartoon lies about Noah. (laughs) Noah doesn't ask anybody to come into the ark with him. When God says to Moses, I'm going to kill the entire nation, what does does Moses Moses say? (laughs) Kill me instead. What does Noah say? Cool. Let's go into the ark. Everyone into the ark. There's a lot of space in here. Animals are going into the ark, and Noah's not asking people to. The flood comes, destroys everybody. The ark lands on a mountain. Who knows the name of the mountain? And does anybody know, by a show of hands, what the word Ararat means in the Hebrew? This is important to read your Bibles. It means the curse is reversed. When God cursed in Genesis 3, who got cursed? Not Adam and not Eve, the ground. God doesn't curse people. He cursed the ground. The ark lands on Mount Ararat after the waters recede. And that mountain means the curse is reversed. So is there any curse now? The curse has been? Okay. Noah comes out of the ark, and he plants a vineyard. And what does he do in the vineyard? He drinks a lot. Passes out naked. We won't say what happened next, but it's horrible. And two of his three sons come and cover his nakedness. Now, this is unbelievable. Because three chapters ago, God planted a garden in Eden. And in that garden, a man misused the fruit of a tree. And in that garden, a man misused the fruit of a tree and became naked. Adam and Eve? The new Genesis story happens. The the flood destroys everything, and now everything's starting to grow again. And a man goes into a vineyard, and he misuses the fruit of a vine. And it says he lays uncovered in his tent. 
So who is this reminding us of? Adam. So clearly, the author of Genesis writing another garden narrative, Adam and Eve fall in a garden and the earth is destroyed, and then here comes what seems like the Savior promised to Eve, Noah. And he plants a vineyard, and he misuses fruit, and he gets drunk, and he falls also in a garden. So this isn't just any kind of sin. This is a sin equated to the sin of Adam. So I pick up Jewish scholarship because I want to, what, what do Jews say about their own text? And Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says, Noah was righteous in his generation, and we take that to mean a good thing. But nobody else was righteous because of his righteousness. How many are unrighteous in this room before Jesus? How many believe Jesus was righteous? How many believe that we're righteous because Jesus is righteous? Which means righteousness is contagious. Noah was righteous. And how many other people were? So he comes out of the ark and sees the carcasses of humanity all over the place. And says, oh my Lord, I should have talked to more people. I should have invited more people in. I should have witnessed more. I was content with my own morality, but didn't share it. I was content with this monstrosity that God told me to build, but I never invited anybody else into it. And Rabbi Sachs and Robert Alter and Rabbi Brent down the road all say that the tradition tells us that he drank because he was in despair of the fact that he privatized his own righteousness. Now look at this. A culture of accusation leads to a culture of isolation because when all that's happening is you're being accused, eventually you just start to live by yourself. And you live well and you keep your well-living to yourself because I'm tired of getting accused all the time. Now, that's a new take on Noah. I invite you to read it. I invite you to have a different take. If it's different than mine, you're dead to me, but that's cool, don't worry about it. That's a strong take. But you have to read every Old Testament story as existing to create the need for Jesus. Jesus is what makes scripture, scripture. And so if, if we hail anybody in any part of the Bible above Jesus, the Bible's no longer scripture. It's actually condemnation. So always make every story that you read, especially in the Old Testament, make them all leave room. Make them all have to carve out space for Jesus. So the story of the Tower of Babel, we have accusation, we have isolation, and then we have a group of people who say, we don't want to be dispersed all over the earth. So now listen to this. Let us make bricks. And when we make bricks, we'll build a building up to the heavens to make a name for ourselves. This is Genesis 11. Let's make bricks. Let's build a building up. And let's make a name for ourselves. And the Bible says that God came down again like he did in Eden. So again, it says that God came down and visited his people. And when he visited his people, he said, all of my people are one. And now nothing they do will be impossible for them. Therefore, 
let's go down there and confuse their language. And so God gave them all divided tongues, and they couldn't communicate with each other anymore, and the building project stopped. So now look at this. God plants a garden. Genesis 3. God plants a garden. Noah plants a vineyard. We make bricks. The progression from letting God provide to us trying to emulate what God did and getting it wrong to us just creating something completely alien to a garden altogether. And if you're an Israelite reading Genesis 11 in Babylon thousands of years later and you hear they made bricks, what do you automatically think about? Egypt and Pharaoh building pyramids to make a name for himself and those bricks now enslaving the people of God. Unity on its own is neutral. The direction of the unity is what matters. Here's a piece of the end of the sermon. In Genesis 21 or 22, I'm sorry, in Revelation 21 or 22, John sees a city coming out of heaven. And where's the city coming from? I saw the new Jerusalem descending. Which way was, were the people in the Tower of Babel trying to build? But which way does the city of God come? We're not trying to build a city up. As Christian community, we're trying to build a city down. We don't build this way to try to reach God. We receive God. We can't build toward him. He builds down toward us. The direction of our unity is what makes it evil or good. Unity itself doesn't matter. C.S. Lewis said this, if you have four ships following a fifth ship, and that fifth ship, I'm saying that very carefully, that fifth ship is a degree off course, they're all going to be unified, and they're all going to get lost. The direction of unity is what matters. They were unified in making a name for themselves. So watch this. And they were building an imposing structure, power, brick, no longer fruit, no longer vineyard, no longer garden, but imposing brick structure. And they're making the brick. They're not even using the stuff of the earth. They're making their own, right? And so what you have here is you have accusation leads to isolation, leads to domination. And now a few examples of this. It is well documented that in the last five or six years, the active shooters that have... um, committed mass murder, there is a overwhelming consensus that most of those people were people who were isolated growing up. They were accused of not being lovable. They isolated themselves, and then they dominated. Hitler accuses the Jews of being the reason for Germany's financial problems. Isolate the Jews. Holocaust. Blacks are accused of being less than a person, isolated, segregation, slavery. Accusation leads to isolation, leads to domination every time. Marriage, where the husband and the wife are constantly accusing each other. Different bank accounts, different beds, different houses. Abuse, divorce. 
plug anything in. And all three belong to each other. Domination causes isolation, which causes accusation as well. This is the culture of the devil. What community are we? Let's read our verse again. I won't make you stand this time. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism, flood, into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What does the baptismal community say to us first? It dismantles the community of accusation. Why? Because when we're baptized, we're baptized into Christ's death. So let's look at what Jesus says when he's on the cross. Because when Jesus is on the cross, what he says is our baptismal identity. When we are baptized in the water, we're baptized into Jesus, which means we're baptized into the way that Jesus lived. And no other part of his life expresses the way he lived than in the things he said on the cross. So on the cross, he takes the community of accusation and he changes it into the community of Father, forgive them. Do you see that flip? She made me do it. The devil made me do it. Father, forgive them. But Jesus, they're wronging you. You could accuse them right now. You're the only one who could actually ever accuse and be fully and integrally right. Forgive them. I don't have to be right because somebody else is wrong. I don't have to be successful because somebody else failed. I don't have to win because somebody else lost. I can now be right because Jesus is right. I can win because Jesus won. I can succeed because Jesus succeeded. I don't need someone else to be wrong for me to be right. Jesus was right enough for me and the people who are wrong to all be right. He starts to dismantle these three communities. He takes the first accusation and reverses it and says, now, uh, Jesus, Jesus was met with a woman caught in the act of adultery. And they said, what should we do, stone her or let her live? Either way, Jesus is going to be wrong. So Jesus says, stone her. Everybody pick up stones. I'm going to let you throw stones at her because I would never break the law of Moses. But here's the thing. Before you throw them, whichever one of you has no sin, you cast the first stone. Mic drop moment for Jesus. And I love it says, everyone left from the oldest to the youngest because the longer you lived, the more you know you got sin. Who's the only one who could have thrown a stone? Didn't even have one in his hand. Why? Because he's, he's the stone that the builders rejected. Forgiveness begins to unravel accusation, isolation, and domination. But now let's look at isolation. Noah, content to be righteous on his own. Noah, content to go into salvation by himself. Noah, content to live in a new garden by himself. And now here's Jesus. Watch this. Jesus is what Noah's ark should have been. 
because in Noah's Ark, one person got saved and everybody else died. But in Jesus, one person died and everyone else got saved. So Jesus is what Noah's Ark should have been. Noah should have said, everyone on the ark, I'll drown in the flood. And because he didn't, Jesus said, fine, everyone on the ark, I'll drown in the flood. He is the ark of the covenant. And so watch what he says to combat isolation. He says, today you will be with me. Paradise isn't paradise to Jesus if you're not there. His righteousness is not privatized. It's fully shared and offered. Jesus is the ark. Jesus is also Noah. And he's saying to the people who are called to be drowned in the flood, come with me. Who's the first person to quote unquote get saved? Is the very centurion who just nailed him to the cross. Is the first person to get saved by confessing that Jesus is Lord. Even in his death, Jesus is saying, you can come into the ark too. Come on. Even if it's raining, come on. Even if you're up to your neck in it, come on. There's room for you and me. Because I forgive, I have room. When I'm holding grudges, there's no room in me. But when I'm forgiving... There's no furniture. Just bring it all in. Whatever you have, bring it in. Do you see that? Amen. Do you see that? And then, domination. Building a tower with brick. And as we said, Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. Jesus is the stone that the people of Babel wouldn't have used to build their tower. There are stones that everybody wants to use. This looks like it could be put into a structure, but there are stones that everyone says, look at this stone, it's odd. This stone can't be used. You were abused, and so now you're a stone that can't be used. Sexually molested, now you're a stone that can't be used. You were cheated on, now you're a stone that can't be used. You failed high school, now you're a stone that can't be used. You failed your parents' expectations, now you're a stone that can't be used. You're emotionally abused, you're a stone now that can't be used. You come from a long line of family members, none of them went to college ever. And so there's just been a poverty mentality for generations. And you don't know how to pick yourself up. Now you're a stone that can't be used. Stones that can fit into a palace can be used. Guess who's in the stone pile of stones that can't be used? They looked at him and said, here's a stone that can't be used. And the stone that couldn't be used became the chief cornerstone of a palace that cannot be destroyed. Peter walks out of the temple with Jesus and says, look how beautiful these stones are. And Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, not one of them will remain. Everyone will be thrown down one upon another. And it's 
20 years later that Peter says in 1 Peter 3, you, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house for the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. How does Jesus combat domination? By saying, I thirst. You bring your spirits, I'll bring my weakness. You bring your perfect polished rocks, I'll bring my stone that the builders rejected. You bring your force and intimidation and accusation, and I'll bring my thirst. We're community here. We need to be a community of people that live with each other in our weaknesses. Otherwise, we're not a Christian community. If the only way for you to be a part of this place is to be strong, that's not the kind of community here. This is a place where we live with each other according to our thirst and desperation. This is where, anybody ever see Rudolph? You know, the island of misfit toys? Right? On the, on the train with the square wheels? This is where all of that is. You know what's the most dangerous about Babel? Let us make a name for ourselves. Isn't it funny that the one person who showed up on this earth that could have lived to make a name for himself decided to make a name for everybody else he met, and now the one who could have made a name for himself that instead made a name for you and me, it's now his name that is lifted above every other name, and it's at the mention of his name that every knee will bow. The one who said, you know what, I know I have a name to make for myself, but I want to make a name for Madeline. I want to make a name for Marissa. I want to make a name for Steve. And in doing that, in giving away his name, Jesus was given a name above every name. It's what we give away that God gives back in full measure, shaken down, pressed together, and all that other kind of stuff that people only use to talk about money, but it's really righteousness, forgiveness, and heaven. Do you know the word I would use for Babel now? Clicks. Clicks. People who are so comfortable with each other that they don't realize consciously that they've left no room for anybody else. And clicks that don't know their clicks are the worst. I'm guilty of it. I have a group of people in this room that it's easiest for me to hang out with. And when life gets crazy and busy, it's just easier to reach for what you're comfortable with. This, this got me in the gut. Clicks are the beginning of slavery. Clicks are the beginning of domination. Click is the beginning of Holocaust. A group of people who, together, without realizing it, begin to be superior without realizing it. And there's no room for anybody else. This week, add one friend to your social network and destroy Babel. Otherwise, what are we doing? Otherwise, what are we doing? It's, not, it's great to shout on Sunday. But if that shout doesn't turn into friendship, what are we doing? If we're shutting the door to the ark and not letting anybody else into our paradise, what are we doing? And it works both ways. 
Listen. Oh, good. Listen. We all know there's rich and poor financially. And you've heard me say this before. And God willing, I'm saying it here on these steps for another 40 years. So here's, here's the reality. There's rich in money and there's poor in money. But put that aside for a second. There's rich in social ability and there's the weak in social ability. And the world we live in caters to outgoing, socially comfortable extroverts and makes life really, really hard for uncomfortable social introverts. And the church needs to put an end to that BS right now. Right now. How do we do that? If you have got the gift of gab and you feel comfortable in front of people, then you need to be the social ability that somebody else doesn't have for them. Lead the conversation. I have talked to people who I'm like, hey, uh, you should just get coffee with somebody. And they're like, I got coffee with somebody recently and it was the worst. How is that possible? (laughs) They're like, here's the thing. So before I get the coffee, (laughs) I'm thinking to myself, okay, so who, who orders? Like, who orders? I'm an off-the-charts extrovert, okay? It's like, just for me, this is foreign, but apparently it's not. And then I'm like, who orders? And then who pays? And then, and then, like, when we sit down, like, if my coffee's done first, do I sit down first or do I wait with that person? And I'm like, what? <laughs> who did this to you? <laughs> I have never thought these things in my entire life. Which, if you... For any of my extroverts in the house, listen, sometimes it's better to have realized you should have said something than you didn't say than to realize, like me, all the time I said stuff I shouldn't have said, right? If I'm going to mess up, I'd rather mess up being quiet than speaking. So it's not like we're, you know, sinless in this or anything. But I've never heard somebody describe real debilitating anxiety over what happens if my coffee is done first, said, I just need to figure out a way for them to order first so their coffee is done first so I can see where they sit down and then I can just go and sit there. What? But I heard that. Jacqueline and I became friends with a couple that goes to a different church. And I noticed the first time we hung out that one of them is like this, a little nervous socially. So the next time they came to my house, I was up front with all these decisions. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to sit here. I'm glad you guys are here. Make yourself comfortable. Put your feet up. Let your kids run around. I'm saying all these proactive things that are automatic in my head. But for somebody else, they're so overthought. This person's probably got anxiety driving to the house. And so I'm front-loading as much as I possibly can to just pave the way for hospitality because I have some social capital that some people don't have. Now, some of you are the rich when it comes to listening to people when they talk, and I am in utter dire poverty when it comes to that. I'm like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-oh, I haven't been hearing. (laughs) All right, try try to catch up. Yeah, oh, man, so you grew up like that. Yeah, okay. Wait, what? Why are we? We're talking about vacations now. What happened? I need you, if you're good at listening, to be like. (laughs) Jacqueline can listen. I can talk. I have trouble listening. She doesn't like to be the first one to speak. We are a match made in heaven. 
But the reality is, I don't need to deny myself to do what I'm doing right now. For some of you, you can't fathom the thought of doing what I'm doing right now. But I don't have to deny myself to do this. I need to deny myself to listen. And many of you don't need to deny yourself to be quiet and listen. You need to deny yourself to speak up and talk. But can, can, can we create an ethos in this room that gives each other the chance to do something that they're not inclined to do because we're using our wealth to help them do it? Be friends with somebody. This week, not this year, don't wait. When we get to November, everyone's like, you know, I'm just going to start doing that in January. Like, no. That's such a long time from now. Don't. Let's open up this space to be a community that is forgiving, accommodating, and serving. So we can destroy accusation, isolation, and domination. Let's stand to our feet this morning. So everybody knows for LTG groups this week, uh, the ushers when you leave are going to hand out this chart that you just saw on little pieces of paper. We have about 100 or 150 of them. So they'll hand that out so you can think about it, talk about it, pray over it. But here's the reality. You're about to come to a table where the person in the basket was falsely accused, yes? Was socially isolated and then was crucified. He was falsely accused, he was put in prison, and then he was crucified. He was accused, he was isolated, and he was dominated. And now we come to the table as those who have been accused, isolated, and dominated by the power of sin and death. And by the time we get to the table, the one in the basket who was accused is saying to you when you pick up that bread, Father, forgive them. The one who was isolated is saying to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. And the one who was dominated was saying, I'm the rock that water poured out of in the wilderness. I'm the well that the woman in John chapter 4 needed, but now I'm thirsty. I'm coming to you in weakness. I'm taking your thirst into myself. You won't be thirsty when you leave this table. Go out there and make sure somebody else isn't thirsty this week. Because out there, they feel accused by the church, isolated by the church, and dominated by the church. Let's go out there and show them the baptismal community. You're forgiven, you're part of us, and we'll thirst with you. Lord Jesus, it was on the night when you were betrayed that you took this bread. And after giving thanks, you held it up. And you said, this is my body which is broken for you. As often as you eat it, eat this to remember me. And after supper, you took the cup of wine, and after giving thanks, you held it up and you said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, drink it to remember me. 
And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that you descend upon these gifts and make them for your people the body and blood of Jesus, the food and the drink of new and unending life in him, and sanctify us also that we may worthily come and eat at your table in unity, constancy, and peace, and at the last day rejoice at your coming. I pray for Salem Tabernacle right now, Heavenly Father that we would always be the church of the breadline, that we would always be the church that knows that its highest moment is to stand with the poor on a breadline with our hands out to receive bread. And I pray that this church would always be a church that knows that when it leaves here, it leaves rich with all the riches of Christ. And we walk into a world that is impoverished, and I pray that we wouldn't be accusatory, isolating or dominating, but we would be forgiving, inviting, and we would meet their weakness with weakness so that they could be okay being who they are and not feel awkward coming into this house where it's nothing but a whole bunch of weak people waiting for the strength of the Holy Spirit to fall on us again and again and again. In your holy name we pray these things and everybody said, Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle Podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.